0: This morning's uh, message by reminding us of a text that we looked at last week. And without breaking stride, I want to continue the reading uh, with our text today. So we're going to begin with Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24, and we're going to continue right on into James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. And let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man and he does not resist you. Ronald J. Sider in his book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, a biblical study wrote these words and I quote, quote, Most Christians in the Northern Hemisphere simply do not believe Jesus' teaching about the deadly danger of possessions. We all know that Jesus warned that possessions are highly dangerous, so dangerous, in fact, that it is extremely difficult for a rich person to be a Christian at all. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God records Luke 18, 24 and 25. And then he says these words, but we do not believe Jesus. Christians in the United States live in the richest society in the history of the world surrounded by a billion hungry neighbors, yet we insist on more and more. If Jesus was so un-American that he considered riches dangerous, then we must either ignore or reinterpret his message. Let me say that again. We do not believe Jesus. Christians in the United States have lived in the richest society in the history of the world, surrounded by a billion hungry neighbors, yet we insist on more and more. If Jesus was so un-American that he considered riches dangerous, then we must either ignore or reinterpret his message. This is James' message to us this morning. And I have to tell you, that this text got to me this week in ways that none of the other messages in James have. Strange as it may sound, I have been more convicted by these words of James than all the others combined, and maybe you will be as well by the end of this message. And it's strange because most of us would not categorize ourselves with the audience to which James addresses his words. He's not pointing to his normal Christian audience here. There is no mention of his usual brethren, even though in the next section, verses seven through 11, he uses the term brethren three times. He's talking in this section to unbelievers. The filthy, rich, self-indulgent money-grubbing, lower-class oppressors who were living in the lap of luxury, blind to the needs of the poor upon whose backs they gained their wealth. Now, would you put yourself in that group? No, more likely not. And neither would I. But at the end of the day, and in light of the quote that I just read to you, and the positioning of ourselves under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, inspired word of God, we may end up in a place that we never thought we would this morning. So let's pray and ask God to lead us precisely where he wants us. Lord, it is my chief design to bring my heart back to thee. Convince me that I cannot be my own God or make myself happy nor my own Christ to restore my joy nor my own spirit to teach, guide, and rule me. Take away my roving eye, curious ear, greedy appetite, lustful heart and show me that none of these things can heal a wounded conscience or support a tottering frame or uphold a departing spirit. And then take me to the cross and leave me there. Amen. Now likely the first question that you may have is why in the world would James be addressing non-believers in a letter addressed to the Christian church? That's a very good question. And I think there may be a couple of very good reasons why. First, by addressing the perpetrators directly as God's mouthpiece, declaring God's judgment upon those whose attitude toward and the acquisition of wealth was unjust, the poor and the oppressed in the Christian community would take comfort from these words in knowing that God was very aware of their affliction. It was an encouragement to know that in the end, all things would be made right. Justice would eventually one day be served. An end was coming from which the oppressors could not escape, as we will see in verses 1 and 3 and 4 here. God has heard their cry. The second reason for addressing unbelievers in this text is to warn Christians who were rich, of the serious consequences surrounding the misuse of their wealth. Although most of James's audience were likely poor, and by the way, in James's day, there was no such thing as the middle class. You were either very wealthy or you were very poor. Middle class didn't exist in that time frame. So although most of James's audience were likely poor, there were some who were rich. If you look back to chapter 1 and you look at verses 9 and 10, James addresses them. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin um, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Oh, I'm sorry. I've got the wrong text here. That's two. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away. So there were some rich people in the congregation that James was addressing. But for the most part, they were likely poor. Now, there is an obvious third and more indirect reason of which James was totally unaware when he wrote this. And that is to warn us, you and me, Because for all intents and purposes, in comparison to most of the world around us, and especially of James's world, the Western church, our church, would be considered incredibly wealthy. As I read this week, if you make $25,000 a year, you are in the wealthiest 2% of the world. Did you know that? If you make $25,000 a year, you're in the wealthiest 2% of the world. In this context, you might be pulling in, let's say, $17,000 a year and feeling broke. I'm telling you that you're actually, by global standards, wealthy. You are someone's Bill Gates, believe it or not. And so am I. You tracking with me right now? You're someone's Bill Gates. As another pastor pointed out, someone would have their mind blown at how you live, even if you think you're living in humble means. If you have that kind of, I just knew they wanted my money attitude that right now that you're talking, I don't want your money. The church doesn't want your money. That isn't this type of a sermon. This is a sermon for the good of your own soul and mind. And here's the driving question for us this morning. When do we have too much? See, we're all under the gun here today. And there's two parts to James's approach in this text. He's issuing a stinging announcement, and then he lists some stunning allegations. These are his words to the unrighteous, oppressive wealthy. He's giving them the what and the what for when it comes to their use of wealth. So hear the words of James and let the Holy Spirit make application where it applies. And if it doesn't apply, let it pass. The first thing's, First thing James says here is the stinging announcement, a warning to the wealthy oppressors. Look at verses one to three with me of chapter five. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries, which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten, your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. First thing he says, right out of the shoe, come now, you rich. And he uses the same phrase that he used back in the fourth chapter in verse 13 when he said to the church, addressing a different audience, come now, you who say. Different audience here, but the same abrupt call to attention. In other words, James is saying, you need to pay attention here. Listen up. I must begin by saying that James is not condemning the wealthy or wealth per se. He is pronouncing judgment on the misuse of it and upon those who are in the habit of misusing it. As Alistair Begg put it, the warning they receive and we in turn receive in the reading of this letter is the stupidity of setting too high a value on wealth, of envying those who have wealth, and of striving feverishly to obtain wealth. me say those again. It's the stupidity of setting too high a value on wealth, of envying those who have wealth, and of striving feverishly to obtain wealth. Again, he's talking directly to unbelievers here. There's no call to repentance. And there's no suggestion that they change their behavior behavior to be more Christ-like in keeping with their faith. There's none of that in this text, but there are some scary, scary pronouncements of woe. In fact, James Tone has the distinct stinging rebuke reminiscent of Old Testament prophets announcing the coming doom upon those who have bartered for another God and commit social injustices. Look at Isaiah chapter 1, for example. Isaiah, I'm sorry, chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10, in the first three verses, the prophet says, Woe to those who enact evil statutes and to those who constantly record unjust decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights so that widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder the orphans. Now what will you do in the day of punishment and in the devastation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Look at chapter 13 in verse 6. Wail, he uses the same word that James is using here. Wail for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. This in James chapter 5 is a noisy text. It's a noisy text. Listen closely to this text, and you will hear a soundtrack of misery. A soundtrack of misery. Again, verse 1 Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. It's noisy. Sounds a lot like an earlier reference of James in chapter four and verse nine, where he says, be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Check these terms out, weeping and howling and misery. It's all so depressing and devastating, isn't it? The terms here are intense terms, graphic, and they invoke the idea of violent grief and actual terror. They are words used to describe the overtaking effect upon those who are the recipients of God's final judgment and wrath. This is no joke, my friends. This section of James is not a bad dream. This is what will take place when God judges the unjust at the end of the age. These are miseries which are coming upon those who are consumed by their wealth and use it to oppress other people. James is using terminology which smacks of the future destruction of the coming judgment of the Lord when the Lord returns. It echoes the words of Jesus delivered to those who were rooted in the luxury and the comfort of this world while they neglected the poverty and the injustice which surrounded them. In Luke chapter 6, in verse 24, Jesus said, but woe to you who are rich for you are receiving your comfort in full. Again, The reason for their coming misery is not their wealth, but because they have not used their wealth given by God to help alleviate the suffering of the poor around them and needs around them. Instead, it was being hoarded, as we will see in the next few verses. The reality is that most of us are blessed with way more than we actually need, aren't we? So it brings up the question of that term, hoarding. And that is what got to me this week. Now, I don't consider myself a hoarder by any stretch of the imagination. My wife might say differently, but... So here I am in my office, immersed in this text of study for hours. And then I go home and I walk into my closet and I see all the clothes that I don't wear. The shoes I have worn maybe once, they're still in the box to keep the dust off them. The sheer variety of choices at my reach, seven, eight pairs of jeans, three different colors, t-shirts, short sleeve and long button down shirts, pullovers, sweatshirts, dress clothes, a suit, Dress shoes, hiking shoes, boots, sneakers, slippers, jackets for every season, ski gloves, work gloves, a baseball glove, a drawer full of socks and underwear for every day of the week, a rack of neckties, on and on it goes. You go home and look at your closet and you won't find much different, I'm sure. And I come back to my office and I'm ready to puke. And that's just the close. And then I have to come back here and face this text again and again and then preach it and then live it and I have to ask myself, is this me, Lord, you're talking to in chapter five? This soundtrack of misery of the unrighteous rich rings in my ears as well because it causes me to go back to my closet and say, what are these things don't I need let me take them out of here and give them to someone who does need them. It's like I wear three pairs of pants every every week, right? I just keep using the same clothes all the time. Because they're favorites. You tracking with me? It's a soundtrack of misery of the unrighteous. It rings in my ears. Does it ring in yours? What's in your closet? What's in your attic? What's in your garage? Probably not a car because you got too much stuff in there to put your car in there. And then James moves on from this soundtrack of misery to a catalog of futility. Look at verses two and three. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. This whole picture here is of a hoarded riches which are in storage and not being used. Read it. Hence the fact that they are rotten moth-eaten, and rusted. Why? Because they're not being used. These are the catalog of riches in the time of James. Wealth, clothing, and money. Those three things are, adjusted, are talked about here. Wealth may largely refer to land and produce in those days, which was the measure of affluence in the ancient world. Clothing and money were also reflective of abundance then. But all these things are temporal and eventually break down, don't they? James, dawning the eye of the prophet, describes these stockpiled riches as decayed and corroded as if it was already had already taken place. Again, the picture is of hoarding their earthly treasure to guarantee future security instead of keeping only what is needed and dispensing the rest, seeking to alleviate the needs around them. I know why I have so many clothes in my closet because someday I might need them. That's the excuse and the rationalization, isn't it? And then five years goes by and I haven't even worn the thing yet. And how many homeless people did I pass in Augusta and I could have had those clothes in the trunk of my car and given them to them? You see, to do that would be investing in heavenly treasure, which will never corrode, never rust, never fade away. I believe it's no coincidence that James' words here parallel the clear teaching of his half-brother Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 and verses 19 to 21. When Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth And rust destroy, or where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. This hoarding of wealth simply serves to show exactly where a person's heart and treasure truly is, doesn't it? The word James uses for rust here is the only used here in the New Testament. The word that Matthew used is a different word. But, um, and it refers here in James to thorough and complete corrosion all the way through to the end. To be sure, gold and silver now do not rust, do they? They're pure metal. But that may be James' strongest point here. Some believe that because early coins were made of pure metals were not made of pure metals uh, but mixed that they were susceptible to corrosion and that's what James is referring to. But I agree with another commentator who made the observation that James was applying this unique term to remind them that in the day of judgment this wealth that they were holding on to would prove to be as worthless as a rusty iron. Worthless. The fact that the rich preferred to let their wealth rot rather than give it to the poor would accuse them in the day of judgment. It would be a witness against them which could not be silenced and would be like a wildfire consuming their flesh in the judgment. Wow, those are strong words. And that's what James uses. Very strong words. There's no lasting benefit to hoarded riches, is there? That's what James says. It's going to consume us in the end. With a soundtrack of misery echoing behind them and the catalog of futility looming before them, James puts the final touch here in these few verses of his stinging announcement right in front of them with a statement of irony. Look at verse 3, the last part of the verse. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. All of their hoarding, and the word treasure here, really means to store up. It was storing up not wealth, but wrath in the last day. Last days here in this context most likely refers to the time between Jesus' first and second coming. Guess who are in the last days, folks? We're in the last days as were the people of James Day. They, however, thought that Christ would return in their lifetime. How ironic it would have been for the rich there to be hoarding resources that would do them them no good if Jesus returned that day. And that is exactly how we should be living as well. Because we don't know when Jesus is going to come, do we? You believe Jesus could come today? Yes? Yes? Yes. Really, testify to it. But there are people around us with needs today. Jesus could come today, and what good is your 401k going to be then? That's the whole point of the parable of Jesus told in Luke chapter 12, which we looked at last time of the foolish businessman who built bigger barns to store his hoarded grain. He thought he could take his ease and then God came calling. And we hear Jesus' words in verse 21 of Luke 12, so is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Are you rich toward God? This whole idea... Here is not that James is putting down responsible stewardship or careful financial planning. No, that's not, don't go down that road. He is rebuking selfish acquisition and misplaced hope. That's what he's rebuking. Matt Chandler, pastor of Village Church in Texas, gets it when he says this. He says, being a good steward of and putting your hope in are not the same thing. I have a responsibility to live as a steward of the good gifts of God's grace on my life. But my hope is not in my 403B or my Roth IRA. My hope is that Christ has me and he will hold me and will provide for me in the day of my need. That's where my hope is. It doesn't mean that I'm irresponsible and that I'm not a good steward. There's a difference. What do you put your hope in? What James is pointing out here is that riches tempt us and deceive us into thinking that this life will go on forever. And the problem is we don't have an eye on God's timetable. We don't live with an eye on God's clock. We tend to live lives without considering God's clock. Unless, of course, something happens in your life and all of a sudden you know what God's clock is and it snaps us into reality. In the UK and Scotland, Denise and I have visited many, many old churches which have a cemetery in their front yard or visibly adjacent to it which is a stark reminder going into the service and upon leaving that service, that life is transient and that God's time clock is what is reality. It's not meant to be morbid. I used to think, wow, this is weird. You're walking up the walkway and there's graves all around you as you go into the church. It's the last thing you see as you come out. It's not meant to be morbid. But those gravestones serve as a vivid reminder that we live and apply the truth of God's word according to his time clock and not ours. And nowhere is this more personal and relevant than in regard to our material wealth and our possessions. Douglas Moo makes the right application of this verse when he says, as those who live in the last days, we too should recognize in the grace of God already displayed and the judgment of God yet to come, a powerful stimulus to share and not hoard our wealth. Ezekiel chapter 7. Verse 19 says this, They will fling their silver into the streets and their gold will become an abhorrent thing. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their appetite, meaning soul. They cannot satisfy their soul, nor can they fill their stomachs for their iniquity has become an occasion of stumbling. The Living Bible puts it this way, Throw away your money. Toss it out like worthless rubbish for it will have no value in the day of wrath. It will neither satisfy nor feed you, for your love of money is the reason for your sin. And that concept, the love of money, wreaks all kinds of havoc in life, doesn't it? We need to go no further than another classic New Testament text to see it. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verses 9 and 10, you'll recognize these verses, Paul writes to Timothy, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now we've all heard the stories, seen the fallout, witnessed the reality that money is fleeting some of the richest men in the world you do the biography reading some of the richest men in the world died penniless friendless homeless and hopeless wealth power and prestige it did nothing to eradicate the depression and the personal anxiety and the guilt that those people felt at the end of their life when they had invested all of their hope and time into an empty pursuit J.C. Ryle, the first Anglican bishop of Liverpool, once pointed out, and I quote, that it is possible to love money without having it, and it is possible to have money without loving it. And that's true, if you have the right attitude. But James' stinging announcement here is warning to those who both had the money and they loved it. He gave them the what? And now he's going to give them the what for. The second part of this text are the stunning allegations, the witnesses against the wealthy perpetrators. Verses 4 through 6. I'll read them one at a time as I deal with them. In these verses, James embarks on an inventory of witnesses that testify to the greediness of these wealthy perpetrators that he's addressing. And the first witness is the withholding of pay. Look at verse four, the first part of the verse. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. The rich are charged with cheating their workers out of their paychecks. He's not just talking about a delay, mind you. He's talking about a complete default. The pay withheld cries out as a witness against the rich. And this crying out, by the way, by the tense of the verb that James uses here, James says is a continual thing. It's constantly crying out. Old Testament and Rabbinic teaching required that a worker be paid at the end of each day, to withhold wages was prohibited by the law and denounced by the Old Testament prophets. Leviticus 19:13 for example says this: Do not defraud or rob your neighbor, do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 13 says, Woe to him who builds his house without righteousness and his upper rooms without justice, who uses his neighbor's services without pay and does not give him his wages. Now, clearly this admonition was still needed in the first century because James is giving it here. But in some sense, it's still needed today, isn't it? I watch my son as a contractor, a builder. He takes jobs from some pretty well-to-do people who want quality materials and workmanship all at a cut rate and an abbreviated time frame. You guys that are builders know all about that, don't you? And on many jobs, he's expected to front the supplies, do the work, pay the workers with little or no upfront money from them. And when the job is complete, they still want 30 days to pay the bill. Now, how many of us have done that with people who have done jobs for us? Are you a boss? Are you a farmer who has hired hands? A businessman, maybe, with minimum wage employees who are qualified for higher pay. Are you withholding the rightful wages of any of your laborers? This James stuff, it really hits close to home, doesn't it? Well, the wording used here the wages themselves crying out against these oppressors creates a very interesting picture. I'd have you hold up your wallet right now. If you have your wallet, take it out of your pocket and hold it up. Now, what is this text saying? Imagine if this wallet that you have in your hand or your checkbook could scream out when the money that is in them was either gained unjustly or because we withheld proper and just payment that was due to somebody. You can put them down. Suppose your wallet could talk. What would it be saying to you? The money, James says, cries out for vengeance. Read verse four again. Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your field and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the word that James uses here is a word denoting a loud cry or a blood-curdling scream. You know what that word was used for in the gospels? It's used elsewhere to describe the cry of demons as they were being cast out of victims. What's your wallet saying to you? But there's another set of voices blending in as well, says James. It's the sound of the victims themselves. Look at the second part of verse 4. This is the wailing of the poor. The outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabaoth. The Lord of Sabbath. Withholding wages from the poor laborer is actually... Believe it or not, one of four sins listed in the Bible which are said to cry out to heaven for justice and they get God's ear. You might be wondering what the other three sins are. I'll tell you. The blood of Abel, Genesis 4.10, murder. The cry of the slaves in Egypt and the oppression of widows and orphans, that's Exodus 2, verse 24, and Exodus 22, verses 22 and 23. The third one is the sin of Sodom, Genesis 18, 20 and 21. And then there is the fourth one, which James deals with here, the injustice is done to the wage earner. And I'll read you that one. It's Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. Says this: Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and are counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. This cry of the economically oppressed gets God's attention. And they reach the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. This is a very unique name of God. It doesn't mean Sabbath. Sabaoth. It's only used one other place in the New Testament in Romans chapter nine, verse 29, quoting the prophet Isaiah. And it means Lord of hosts, Lord of the armies. Sound familiar? Doth ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth his name from age to age the same, and he will win the battle. Recognize those lyrics? Martin Luther, who 500 years ago on Tuesday unleashed a reformation which radically changed the church, chose this title wisely as he used it in the familiar hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's an old school name for God, but it depicts the mighty power to save that he has. God in all his omnipotence is on the side of the downtrodden and the powerless, the scripture says. And he will dispense justice swiftly to their oppressors when Jesus returns. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is which side will we be on? Third witness here in this text is the wastefulness of pleasure. Look at verse five. You have lived luxuriously on the earth. And led a life of wanton pleasure. James chose his words carefully, incisively. They pierce a rich man's heart all the way down to the 21st century. You know what he's talking about here? He's talking about soft, cushy living. And it implies the constant nature of their entire life. It's, he's talking to you. Have lived luxuriously on the earth. You've lived softly. You know what we're talking about here. We're talking about the American dream: nice home, nice car, 2.5 children, an SUV, and a Labrador Retriever with an LL Bean bandana around its neck. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I mean seriously, when you consider we're we're in the wealthiest two percent of the world, a lot of us. What is James talking about? Again, his charge is not against wealth, but the way that it's has deceived and blinded people's eyes to the needs of the poor. This is convicting. As I said earlier, I can look around at all the stuff I have and I really have to ask the question, do I need all this? Is it really necessary for my happiness? Is it really necessary for effective ministry? No, it's not. Because if we think it is, and I think God is showing us in this passage that we're in deeper trouble than we think we know or that we know we are. If James shows us anything, it's that we haven't learned anything. He speaks like an Old Testament prophet for a reason. Look at Amos chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria, the distinguished men of the foremost of nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Calneh and look and go from here to Hamath, the great Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are they better than these kingdoms or is their territory greater than yours? Do you put off the day of calamity and would you bring near the seat of violence? Those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who improvise to the sound of the harp and like David have composed songs for themselves who drink wine from sacrificial bowls while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils, and they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they will go into exile at the head of the exiles, and the sprawlers' banqueting will pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, the Lord God of hosts has declared, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob and detest his citadels. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all it contains who those are stinging words old testament prophet said and james is kind of mimicking that same thing what amos was to israel james is to the oppressive rich in the last days These last days, the witnesses line up to testify against them, the withholding of wages, the wailing of the poor, the wastefulness of pleasure, and then finally, the wretchedness of pride. Wretchedness of pride. Last part of verse five and then verse six. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man and he does not resist you. Now, here's the vividness and the sadness of the coming day of judgment. While the poor remain neglected and oppressed, the rich continue to feed themselves self-indulgently. And it is tantamount to murder, says James. Verse six, you've condemned and put to death the righteous man and he doesn't resist you. Now, the question arises, have the wealthy really condemned and put the people to death? Well, it's definitely happened in history. Because the rich have exploited the righteous, cheated the needy out of land, forced them from their homes and jobs, and deprived them of their livelihood, they have caused the practical outcome of starvation, sickness, and death. Joshua Ben-Sirah in the second century before Christ said this, The bread of the needy is the life of the poor. Whoever deprives them of it is a man of blood. To take away a neighbor's living is to murder him to deprive an employee of his wages is to shed his blood. Historically, the righteous and the oppressed have repeatedly fallen prey to the exploitation of the rich and powerful, haven't they? But in the end, they will not fare so well like grazing beef cattle headed for the slaughterhouse, they continue to feed their insatiable desires, oblivious to not only the needs around them, but the desperate need within them. They don't even know that their day has arrived. That's what James' is picture here. Picture the the picture it. The beef cows stuffing themselves feeding on the very day they're going to have their throats slit and become beef. As one man said, oh, to be a thin cow on the day the butcher comes. (laughs) A lot of truth to that, isn't there? Here's the power and the peril of wealth. This is Jesus' indictment of the rich young ruler. When our hearts become fat and focus solely on the treasures of this earth, you know what happens? We ignore God. We defraud our neighbors. And I could stop right there because those first two are an absolute reversal of the two greatest commandments, which is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So we ignore God, we defraud our neighbors, and then we invite God's judgment. There are so many so-called Christian ministries which are some of the worst perpetrators here. And you know who the victims are? I was reading a survey this week, most of the victims are women from 55 to 65 year old, years old, but lower middle class that take this false teaching, hook line and sinker and they give their money to them and end up poor, needy, can't even feed themselves. But they've done justice. They've, they're saving up their treasures in heaven because they've listened to some shyster who used the name of God and Christ to get their money. And it happens all the time. You want me to name names? I don't need to name names. You know the names. But interesting thing I ran across this week, and I know it's getting a little late, but this will be the... I'll wrap it up as soon as I give you this. If any of you uh, get Christianity Today, the October issue on the back side has a two-page testimony. The title of it is Riches I Heed Not. It's written by Benny Hinn's nephew. Benny Hinn's nephew traded Gulfstream gospel ministry for the real thing, he says, I was traveling the world on a private Gulfstream jet doing gospel ministry and enjoying every luxury money could buy. After a comfortable flight and my favorite meal, lasagna made by our personal chef, we prepared for a ministry trip by resting at the Grand Resort in Laganisi. Boasting of my very own ocean view villa, complete with private pool and over 2000 square feet of living space, I perched on the rocks above the water's edge and rejoiced in the life I was living. After all, I was serving Jesus Christ and living the abundant life that he promised. Little did I know that this coastline was part of the Aegean Sea, the same body of water the apostle Paul sailed while spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was just one problem, however. We weren't preaching the same gospel as Paul. Growing growing up in the Hinn family empire was like belonging to some hybrid of royal family and the mafia. Our lifestyle was lavish, our loyalty was enforced, and our version of the gospel was big business. Though Jesus Christ was still part of our gospel, he was more of a magic genie than the King of Kings. I don't have to expose anybody. This is the nephew. He was in, in it. He said, We lived the prosperity gospel. Prosperity theology paid amazingly well. Listen to this. We lived in a 10,000 square foot mansion guarded by a private gate, drove two Mercedes-Benz vehicles, vacationed in exotic destinations and shopped at the most expensive stores. On top of that, we bought a $2 million Ocean View home in Dana Point, California where another Mercedes-Benz joined the fleet. We were abundantly blessed. well, I don't need to read the whole thing to you. But he started to have doubts. Started to have doubts. He says, within the family, we didn't tolerate criticism. One day I asked my father if we could go to heal my friend from school who had lost their hair due to cancer. This is the healing ministry. He replied that we should pray for her at home rather than going to heal her. And I thought to myself, shouldn't we be doing what the apostles did if we have the same gift? That was his first inclination. Before going to college, he took a year off and joined Benny's ministry as a catcher. A catcher is someone who catches people when the preacher slays them in the spirit. And he was a personal assistant. This was a rite of passage for his family as nearly every nephew worked for him at some point. That year was a whirlwind tour of luxury, $25,000 a night, royal suites in Dubai. Really? Seaside resorts in Greece, tours of the swift, at swiss alps villas on lake como in italy banking on the basking on the golden coast of australia shopping sprees at harrods in london and numerous trips to israel hawaii and everywhere in between the pay was great we flew on our own private gulf stream and i got to buy custom suits and all i had to do was catch people and look spiritual and then i graduated college and returned home and he met his wife christine and he said, I had no idea that God would use her in bringing about my salvation. And he talks about how one at a time this girl used scripture to debunk all the lies that this ministry was telling. And then after he got saved, he got hired on as, a, as an assistant, a youth, a youth pastor um, at a church. And that church really discipled him further and he closes this by saying I'm thankful that my wife was willing to question my insistence on some of these things and that my pastor loved me enough to disciple me out of prosperity gospel confusion I've seen how God uses evangelism and discipleship to transform lost souls into found saints a Christian's greatest ability is availability when God's people are willing to take a step of faith and speak the truth in love, lives are transformed and God is glorified, you never know who he might save through your faithfulness. So what can we do? Again, in comparison to the rest of the world, we would be classified as the wealthy. So what are we doing with it? We all have to answer that question for ourselves. I need to go home and I need to clean out. My wife's going, yeah. We all have to answer that question for ourselves and let the Holy Spirit guide you. It'll be interesting to see how God uses this message. You know, someone said there's a reason we're drawn to superhero movies. There's something in all of our literature and all the films that we love that shows that we really desire and value at a deep level self sacrifice and risk. And unfortunately, I think these are ideas that we would ascribe to and say we value, but our wallets and our lives would say we don't at all. We love the idea of self sacrifice as long as we don't have to self sacrifice. We all love the idea of laying down our lives for something greater as long as it's Iron Man doing it. Not me. You see, it's kind of a sad state of affairs. It reveals the toxicity that flows in our blood that we drink in every single day in this culture. What are we to do? I'll just list a few things for you. Repent of the eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die mindset. Repent of it. Number two, pursue contentment. And you're going to have to pursue it. Because you can have all the stuff in the world, and you know it doesn't make you content. Number three, if you want to grow in contentment, cultivate gratitude for what you do have. Number four, don't uselessly pile up wealth. Use it for God's purposes. Here's the attitude we should cultivate. And I heard uh, um, Franklin Graham talk about this when he came to Augusta at a a private setting that a bunch of us were at. Um, And he was talking about his father, Billy, divesting himself of everything that he had before he died. Here's the attitude we should cultivate. I want to go out of this world just about the time my money runs out. I want to make sure I'm not hoarding it against some nebulous tomorrow that may never come when God is calling for the proper investment of all that I have in His eternal kingdom today. Scripture says provide for your family, invest in the service of the kingdom, use it to win the lost care for those in need and wisely support those who minister for God and be very careful who that is, as you just heard. Essentially, I'm gonna send you out with this, God's word, because I believe in God's word, that it has the power to change people, not me, it. Essentially do what 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19 says to you. Do and I'll read those verses for you. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. These are Paul's instructions to Timothy, which give us a positive spin on the warning of James. Okay, here it is Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. But instruct them to do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. In other words, don't be arrogant. Don't put your hope in wealth. Put your hope in God. Do good, be generous and invest in forever. Amen. And the first thing that you can invest in is your life, in your soul, in your heart by accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's step one. And then everything moves on from there. So if you haven't done that today, I just invite you to look further into it. And there are many people here that would love to talk to you about that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Harsh words, serious words, important words. We fall so far short, Lord, but we thank you that you brought them to our attention and now give us the strength to do what we need to do with them. For Jesus' sake I pray and in his name, amen.